We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion, but we'd love to hear what you're thinking as well. On our website are directions to download our app. Once you have it, join the group. What are you thinking? We'd love to connect with you there. I am pleased to offer two contributions to this summer's lesson series, Rehabilitating Religion. And for the first one today, I am going to rehabilitate God. In 20 minutes. You're welcome. Well, what I'm really going to do is share with you what I have come to think about God and what I have come to know of God in my own experience. And I've gotten up here and delivered maybe a half dozen lessons over the past year or so. So forgive me if you hear a few things in this lesson that you've heard in a previous talk. But I also hope that you hear something new because my understanding of God is always evolving just as I have come to believe that the divine itself is also always evolving. Now, in a way, I kicked this off, uh, this thought process off a few months ago when I did my lesson, The Divine Is In You, So What? And I posited then that whoever or whatever God is, God needs us to be God, meaning both that we are the hands and feet of God doing God's work in this world, and also that without us, without creation, God isn't actualized, isn't realized, and is locked in a place of primordial longing and grief like an, like an eternal acorn that cannot achieve its oak tree destiny. But what or who is God? We tend to avoid even using the word around here because for those of us who came up through the Christian path, the word God evokes images of an old white bearded man on a throne in the clouds, an unchanging and all-powerful father and king who loves us but has no choice but to condemn us to the eternal fires of hell unless he sends his only son into the world for the purpose of suffering one of the most horrific deaths a human could possibly endure because this sacrificial atonement is the only way our all-powerful God can save the human race, otherwise doomed for all time. And why? Because Eve. <laughs> so, <laughs> It goes without saying in this community that much of what we've been taught about God in the 20th century churches has been a little off, confusing, maddening, and traumatizing even. In part, this is because that of the five sources of spiritual authority that Doug has enumerated over the years and Angie listed in her lesson last week, experience, intuition, community, tradition, and sacred texts, we have leaned far, far too heavily on either one of those last two, depending on which branch of the Christian tree we grew up in. And for most Protestants, it's the Bible. And for most Catholics and other liturgical-leaning churches, it's tradition or the institutional church itself. Now, while Angie was growing up wrestling with the myriad inconsistencies riddled throughout the Bible, 
My focus was directed toward being a faithful member of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I mean, I was taught that truth was to be found in the Bible, sure, but my Catholic faith put primary emphasis on liturgy, ritual, and sacraments, the Eucharist mostly. And as a child with a sense of awe and wonder, I was very much drawn to the sacred mystery running through the whole thing. And I think the reason why I remained drawn to it for so long was because it was there in and through the church that I came into intimate contact with God through those first and second sources of spiritual authority, experience, and intuition. My earliest memory of a kind of mystical consciousness came around the time I was three or four years old, running back and forth between some wooden posts at either end of a church pew after mass as light streamed through the stained glass windows and the pipe organ was winding down and mom was doing that after church mom talk that moms always do. There was some kind of light or energy running through me, all around me, filling me with an indescribable joy, an unnamed longing fulfilled and a deeply felt sense of love and being loved. At the age of three, I knew God that day as love in that church, and I didn't want to go home. I felt I was home. So I kept going back to church, looking for and finding that mystical God who is love. When I made my first communion a few years later, I sensed there was something deeply meaningful about what I was doing. And my confirmation at the age of 14 was a singularly powerful and until recently unparalleled mystical experience in which I felt lit up from within. I knew the divine within me, and this made me want to climb a mountain and sing God's praises night and day. Now, maybe the institutional church was trying to control me with its list of rules, with its warnings about the importance of right belief, with its insistence that I could only truly encounter God through the church's mediator priests. And still, it was through the church's tradition and its liturgy and its sacraments that I blew past its self-protective institutional bulwarks and had those interior first-hand youthful encounters with God. I intuited God, I experienced God, I knew God, and I loved God. I couldn't explain God, but that to me seemed quite beside the point. Now, when it came to that issue of right belief, I had always struggled with the idea of a father figure God out there who rewarded right doctrinal belief with heaven and punished everyone else with the eternal fires of hell. But that's what faith was for, right? Believing even when we don't quite get it, because God gets it, and that should be sufficient. I could rest in the wisdom of Holy Mother Church who told us God has his reasons we are too small to really understand. Questioning the church, which had been around for a lot longer than I had, seemed presumptuous and in conflict with the kind of spiritual humility I was encouraged to adopt. But then I went to college, and with the expansion of my world came an expansion of my desire to intellectually wrap my head around what this theology was really all about. I took a bunch of classes on religion and Christianity, but far from helping me come to terms with the things I'd been taught and providing concrete answers, these new perspectives were stirring up all kinds of new questions about the sources of scripture, the legitimacy of the church, and even the very nature of God. Now, in my studies, I had discovered female theologians, for instance, and before I knew it, I was all riled up about the exclusive use of male metaphors and pronouns to refer to God, and I made it a point for a while to use female pronouns for the Holy Spirit when I made the sign of the cross to try and balance out the two dudes and a bird concept of the Holy Trinity that was such a cornerstone of my upbringing. 
But you know, the whole Trinity thing itself, the three persons and one God who happened to consist of a father, a son, and a bird, still wasn't making sense to me, even when I turned the bird into a girl. So as I moved through my adult life, the tensions grew between the things I'd been taught, the things I was learning, and the profound and wordless knowing deep inside me. I spent 10 years discerning a call to the Episcopal priesthood before I finally found my experience there wanting. I returned to Catholicism for perceived lack of better options with a heart that could only be described as lukewarm, a terrifying way to feel if you take the book of Revelation literally. I'd go to mass, but it felt empty. I'd flip through the Bible, but it bored me. I prayed my rosary, and it felt rote and meaningless. All of this became even more pronounced as I came to accept the reality that I was gay, an inclination that the Vatican had gone out of its way to classify as objectively disordered and predisposing me toward an intrinsic moral evil. And still, I couldn't quite let go. Not only had it been drilled into me for so long that the church is how you find God, but I truly had experienced God in that church. So I kept looking, like millions of people, people do, keep, kept looking to something outside myself to find a definitive, concrete, safe definition of and encounter with God. And when we do that, we either feel lost and keep feeling lost, or we tire of feeling lost and we cling to what we can. And when we cling, we can mistake the externalities that attempt to contain God for God. We worship the Bible, we worship the church, the doctrines, the traditions, the sacraments, the savior. And that's what idolatry actually is. It's an attempt to sum the entirety of God up in a container that cannot contain God. How ironic is it to consider that idolatry is condemned in a Bible and by a church that have themselves become the greatest idols in the history of the world. For many years, I felt a sense of despair and a sense of resignation to that despair. I thought I was losing my faith when I could no longer find light or life in the containers. What I was really doing, though, was deconstructing, moving away from idolatry and, when my world fell apart for a minute, into a dark night of the soul a stretch of time when God couldn't have felt more distant in which I knew from my previous reading of the mystics and my own personal experience is the most fruitful of all places to spiritually grow. This particular dark night was a time of radical surrender of so much of what I'd held on to in my life, including much of my faith as I'd known it. Letting go of the paucity of the punitive doctrines, letting go of the rigidity of the institutional church, letting go of the desire for a God who would come and magically save me from my pain. And while I couldn't see it while I was in it, I held on to what the mystics claim, that the dark night isn't so much a distance from God as it is a suffering with God, a suffering for God, and in fact just might be God's suffering in and through us. So, since God felt very distant to me at the time, I took the notion that God was nearer than I could imagine on faith, and I found this kind of faith to be much more satisfying than the one that said, the church knows best, don't question what doesn't make sense, just obey. When I began to emerge from that dark night, what I came to obey was my own deep conscience, even as I wasn't sure what came next. And I had a lot to work with, as I could certainly point to sacred writing, tradition, experience, and intuition as sources of spiritual authority that had given me access to God. 
but I also sensed I was missing something important, something that was keeping me stuck, something that I needed to move me forward again on this lifelong spiritual path. Maria Brown came into my life right on time. And her arrival led to the arising of that fifth source of spiritual authority that I desperately needed but had never truly known or even knew that I needed, authentic spiritual community. In Maria, I found an intimate friend and partner who wanted to forge a relationship rooted in spiritual growth, and we got started on that right away. Maybe we didn't have a handle on who or what God was, but Maria certainly helped me rest more confidently in my deep knowing of who or what God wasn't. She told me of the time she and her father, a deeply devout Pentecostal Christian, spent some time hiking together on the Appalachian Trail. Concerned for the immortal soul of his non-theist queer daughter ensnared in satanic deception, her dad asked her, aren't you afraid of hell? Maria told him that she'd thought about that question at length, and what mattered most for her was doing the right things for the right reasons. If her principled refusal to tick doctrinal boxes out of fear in order to keep her integrity intact meant she risked a capricious deity sentencing her to eternal damnation on a technicality, then so be it. Any god that demanded the sacrifice of her conscience was way too small for either obedience or worship. Although we might not have framed it that way at the time, together as a community of two, Maria and I embarked upon a journey to find God. And that journey led us in short order to Common Thread, this larger community of the most authentic people either one of us had ever encountered. This community's approach to reclaiming ancient wisdom provided the perfect context for growing in our spiritual lives. We took advantage of the tools offered here, the Enneagram, Doug's book, the self-awareness practice. Our marriage began to take on a whole new and holy meaning as we joined life story groups, went to picnics and breweries, and got to know people in this community who also deeply hungered for spiritual growth. We organically found ourselves with new beloved spiritual friends immersed in our own wisdom schools, drinking from mystical Christian fire hoses when not sitting in silent contemplation together. And in time, we noticed that we were beginning to see things differently, very, very differently. We moved through our days with more equanimity and less frustration. We quit tuning in to polarized news media. We felt love for total strangers on the street. We found ourselves unable to kill even cockroaches on the porch. <laughs> All because we were catching a glimpses of a deeper reality of the interconnectedness of all things, leading us to a whole new way of experiencing God in relationship in intentional community. Even the two dudes in a bird concept that makes zero literal sense made beautiful mystical sense when we stopped thinking of the Trinity as three persons in one God called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and saw it instead as a metaphor for the process of an interabiding relational cosmic unity. No angry omnipotent father with a list of rules to obey, no sacrificial atonement of a Galilean deity, no du dudes, no girl birds, no boy birds, just this concept of God as eternal new arisings through the infinite expansion of love. Contemporary mystic and theologian Barbara Taylor Brown speaks for both Maria and me when she says, at this point in my thinking, it is not enough for me to proclaim that God is responsible for all this unity. Instead, I want to proclaim that God is the unity, the very energy, the very intelligence, the very elegance and passion that makes it all go. God is the unity and God is the community. This right here, this common thread of interabiding love 
you, us. This is God in whom we live and move and have our being. You know, just about a week and a half ago, a team of astronomers from around the world working together as the, get this long name, North American Nanohertz Obser Observatory for Gravitational Waves. Oh, yeah. yeah, them. <laughs> made a remarkable discovery regarding pulsars, those ultra-dense leftover cores of massive stars that continue to emit beams of radiation. The scientists found that a small change in the period of any one pulsar's signal in the universe was linked to changes in all the other pulsar's signals. And putting it all together, these scientists could see that these ripples were not from one discrete source, but from a din or a hum, the overlapping echoes of disturbances scattered across the entire universe. According to astrophysicist Adam Frank in his piece in The Atlantic about this discovery, the nanograv team has brought us proof that something miraculous, something wonderful is happening. Every gravitational wave in that background is humming through the very constitution of the space you inhabit right now. Every proton and neutron in every atom from the tip of your toes to the top of your head is shifting, shuttling, and vibrating in a collective purr within which the entire history of the universe is implicated. All of a sudden, we know that we are humming in tune with the entire universe, that each of us contains the signature of everything that has ever been. It's all within us, around us, pushing us to and fro as we hurtle through the cosmos. All of a sudden we know? Nah. It's just that science continues to clarify what deep down we've always known and what those of us who desire transform real transformation in our lives are coming to remember. I may have lost it for decades, but when I was a child, I knew. You probably did too. That not one of us is a space that God does not occupy. That God is closer than our breath that nothing can fall outside of God, that God is love and love is a verb, always growing and expanding, a pulsing energy that lights up and enlivens everything in an infinite unfolding of potential and possibility, and that within this unfolding, all is well. Now, a month ago, I finally had a mystical encounter that rivaled the one I had 40 years ago at my confirmation. And in it, my sense of God dwelling in me shifted more into a sense of me dwelling in God as a distinct but not separate self, interabiding with all that is. It clarified for me a conviction that Maria and I have been living into, that we are less interested in who or what God is for us and more interested in who and what we are for God, in what God needs from us. And we found deep truth in the words of Jacob Burma, a somewhat obscure but deeply insightful 16th century German mystic, who insists that our purpose in being human is to carry back to God the wonders we have wrought and found out here so that God and we in God can grow in infinite love. So who or what is God? Well, if it's true that God acquires new life in us and grows in love through our incarnate lives, and if what God becomes in each of us in this earthly life is transformed into the growth of God's eternal life and infinite love, and thus our eternal life and infinite love, then who God is kind of depends on us. At least that's the best I can come up with using words to try and grasp what is ultimately beyond those words. And all I can say is that my own experience has begun to track quite nicely with the wisdom of the mystics, with John of the Cross, with Teresa of Avila, with Jacob Burma, with Teilhard de Chardin. I have seen this reality, this unity, this oneness. I have tasted it, and I know it. 
And if you don't already know this deeply for yourself, or if you have forgotten, I can't convince you of it, and nor do I want to. All I can do is tell you that when you clear your lens of perception, you will see it too, and it is all so indescribably beautiful. And finally, if you think this conception of the divine is a departure from what Jesus had to say in the Gospels, please make sure you tune in three weeks from now when I will dare to rehabilitate Jesus in 20 minutes. <laughs> because Jesus was trying to tell us all this 2,000 years ago, and but for the monks and mystics through the ages who also had eyes to see and ears to hear, it's mostly been lost in translation. And so indwelling divine, help us to live out our purpose to bring back to you all the wonders that we will have wrought and found here so that you, we, and all that is, the great I am, might grow eternally in divine love. Amen. And I'm not going to say another word, because now we're going to do what are you thinking, and I'm not going to talk. Again, thank you all so much. Thanks to us. We are doing quite well, given that we've had this enormous move. But I also want to take a moment before I refer to the slide behind me to also thank those of you who have given and donated gifts of your time and your energy. Um, I didn't quite understand what Ray did, but it sounded important and impressive. And I know that all of these baffles up on the wall constitute also a donation of time and energy. So as we remember, as we always do, that all of us give online now, that all of us make an investment in our spiritual community, and we thank ourselves and we thank others, and we thank, uh, I thank you, we thank each other for keeping in mind what we say every single week, that there is excellent, good, life-giving return when we invest in this spiritual community. Let us also remember that some of us are in a position to do that with our dollars, and some of us are in a position to do that with our time and our energy, and some of us have been doing both. So thank you very much, all of you. <coughs> so we are about to dismiss the online folks and uh, form ourselves into what are you thinking. So let me remind the online people that uh, you will find what are you thinking online on Zoom and that the code to get in there is 1417. So we look forward to seeing you online in what are you thinking. And I am looking forward to doing what are you thinking today because we have quite a big topic. So um, let us dismiss our online folks and then get ready to do what are you thinking here together. So if you would, please put your hand on your heart as we dismiss our online and live stream people and remember the following. That we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine, God. That means that love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness, they are in us because the divine breath is in us, pulsing, apparently, in harmony with all of the rest of the universe. And if you would, extend your hand to our city, your other hand to our city, and let's look for opportunities to share what's in us with the people with whom we work and live and go to school looking for opportunities to repair and heal our world. Amen. God bless you all. You are dismissed, and the rest of us are not. 
I would like to invite us to do again what Angie did last week. I think I saw that a couple of the things that she did were very welcomed. So at the end of a 20-minute lesson that engaged us in such um, poetic images and depth, I think some of us need a minute um, to sort of process and to take that in. And some of us are ready to just, as my mom would have said, run at the map. If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. Go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is right there on the top. Thank you.